not their first time in Beacon Hills with a sword-related injury. Won't be the last. I'm the no-kitsune, Miss 12-year-old kid. And I'm like, yeah, sure you are, man. As Rose do. That's a real freaking sicko. Are you going to swing it around in circles if it's in a fanny pack? Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calissa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. And this week, we're talking about Season 3, Episode 24, The Divine Move, the finale of Season 3B. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, and the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for a movie starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tubler and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at Return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. The title of this week's episode is The Divine Move. It was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. In it, the pack deals with their profound loss. Lydia and Deaton come up with a way to contain the Nagitsune, but they have to defeat it first. Isaac figures out how Allison killed an Oni. Melissa convinces Raphael not to give up on his relationship with Scott. Then Nagitsune threatens to poison everyone Styles loves unless Scott kills him. Styles sees through the Nagitsune's illusions, allowing the pack to make their final move against the Nagitsune, but not before the fight claims another casualty. Just as things start to get back to normal, a monster from Derek's past comes back to haunt him. Our favorite quote from this episode is probably obvious to a lot of you. It's our... Special quote that we have at the end of every single one of our podcast episodes. It's Danny Mihailani saying, dude, it's Beacon Hills. Pretty great. Dude, it's Beacon Hills. <laughs> dude, it's uh, Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills. That was that was really bad in a good name. No, no, that was great. <laughs> our honorable mentions for this week include Derek, who says... He will do anything and everything to save the people he cares about. When there's no chance of winning, he keeps fighting. When all hope is lost, he finds another way. And when he's beaten down, he stands up again. And who is he talking about there? Himself. Uh, Scott. Oh, oh, yeah, Scott. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our last honorable mention is an exchange between Malia and Coach Finstock. Malia says, I sometimes ran from cougars trying to eat me. Coach Finstock says, I've had the same problem. Classic coach. It is. <laughs> the episode begins with Leah, Scott, and Isaac sitting in the sheriff's station. Oh, they've had a rough day. Scott flashes back to Chris coaching him through the story he would tell the police. Chris ensures Scott is vague about the weapon. Instead of just yelling, they had a giant ass sword. <laughs> I mean, but like the medical examiner there 
it's gonna probably figure out it was sword like it was sword like yeah it's not their first time in beacon hills with a sword related injury won't be the last no it won't is there a word that means sword like wolfies let us know if he gets confused chris says scott should just say it happened so fast poor chris having to coach scott through this couldn't they have like not called the cops though and just have allison disappear that would be a very bad idea. People would obviously notice she was gone. I will say, though, I don't think they needed all three of them. Scott, Lydia, and Isaac saying they were there. I'm not sure why they did that. Yeah, it seems like they could have said Allison was there with Scott, and that's it. Well, they had nothing for Isaac to do in that episode, so until later on. I mean, he no, cries. Yeah, they, they, no, they do. It's like right away. Yeah, that's true. He finds all out the stuff the with secret. Chris is right away. Yeah. Were you listening to the synopsis that I read? Kira and Styles seek advice from Noshiko and Ken. Kira points out that Allison killed an Oni, but no one can figure out how. The Oni killed Allison right after. Styles says the only good thing is that he seems to be dying too. It is a good thing. It's a good look. Very necro chic. Nice. There were a couple lines from the original script that were cut here. When talking about the tea, Styles asks, Got any cyanide to go with it? Noshiko says, unfortunately, at this point, killing you won't help anyone. Yeah, that sounds like Noshiko. Yeah. Starting it with unfortunately. Yes. Just feels like Noshiko. I've does. thought of it and I've concluded it is not the move. Ken says they need a divine move. Noshiko explains the term, which is a truly inspired or out of the box move in the game of Go. Do you think the next season of Wolfpack will have the game of Go? Yes. I hope not. Wolfies, what do you think the odds are? For reference, Jeff also used the game of Go in the pilot of Criminal Minds. Kira asks about the jar Noshiko used to trap the Nigitsune before. Noshiko explains it wasn't the jar, but where she buried it, in the Nimaton, which she doesn't know much about. But Styles realizes they know someone who does, Deaton. Okay, but how did Noshiko know where to bury the jar then? Some kind of supernatural pull towards it, maybe? It is a beacon. I'm just going to bury this here and see what happens. It feels like I should do it. Do you think it could be a trap? Who knows? Find out. As Chris and Isaac return to Chris's apartment, he tells Isaac that while he appreciates Isaac's concern, he'll be okay alone. He can compartmentalize his emotions. His favorite song in Book of Mormon was Turn It Off. I think that compartment is crumbling. Isaac doesn't have the ability to compartmentalize. Oh, one of the saddest lines on the show. He just has no idea where to go at this point. Could go back to Derek, who knows a thing or two about trauma. Or Scott. They can mourn their girlfriend together. True. Chris hugs Isaac, but whereas Isaac looks devastated, Chris's expression hardens. Yeah, he and Derek actually have a lot in common. When I don't know what to do with my soft emotions, I just feel angry. <laughs> <laughs> the teaser ends with an Oni materializing at the sheriff's station and Parrish's bullets doing little to slow it down. Stop using your middle finger to pull the trigger! A massacre at the sheriff's station must be a Tuesday. At the loft, Derek patches up the twins using a lighter for the wolfsbane wounds. Poor Derek. He's gotten a lot of use out of that lighter, though. Yeah. Good investment. Mm -hmm. yeah. The twins make plans to convince their respective love interest to get out of Dodge while they still can, but Derek says he doesn't think Danny will believe Ethan and Lydia would never run and hide. Because of Styles, Aiden guesses. Because of Scott, Derek says. Dumbass, he also should have added. <laughs> like, he's been trying to get this through to him for a while now, I feel like. Yes. He has, yeah. You don't fight for a leader, but for a leader's cause, Derek explains. Scott has always been about saving his friends. He'll do anything for the people he cares about and never 
backs down. That's you, baby. Classic Derek. I don't think he's capable of recognizing positive traits in himself. Or negative ones, I feel like. Very true. Yeah, good point. He's always projecting, and that includes vulnerabilities. I say vulnerabilities because I do think he's capable of seeing flaws in himself. Like in season two, when Peter says that what he lacks most is a heart, Derek doesn't argue. And he tells Jennifer, everyone around me gets hurt in 3A. And in this season, we even get him admitting that he doesn't know what to do. And he thinks Scott has more answers than he does. Scott and Lydia go to Deaton to learn more about the Nemeton. It's true that it was once used to contain powerful objects, but that was when the tree was whole. Now it's been cut down. Lydia thinks of another powerful object with a wooden container, Talia's claws. It's a good instinct. Deaton tells them the box containing her claws was indeed made of wood from the Nemeton back when it was whole. Deaton knows this because, da-da-da, he made the box. Talia's box. So how did the Calaveras end up with it? eBay. Peter was just selling all the shit and then he realized yeah. he made a mistake. That's That was after her death, right? I mean, the box could have been made prior to that and then a decision was made to put the claws in the box, but somebody had to make that decision and it was not the Calaveras because they were not present for that sort of thing. Derek and Laura obviously fled. Peter was incapacitated. I mean, it kind of just t- takes me back to Deaton was terrible at trying to, you know, follow through with what you would think would be Talia's wishes, because I'm sure she wouldn't want her claws to end up just anywhere. Yeah, it's hard to say, but it was definitely a human who did it because of all the mountain ash involved. I mean, that might have been the Calaveras who did the mountain ash stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or that was my assumption. I'm just wondering, how did it get from the hands of whoever rescued Talia's claws, which I'm assuming is Deaton, just because of the knowledge he has in this scene? How did it get from there to the Calaveras? Because that's where they get it back from. Yeah, and if it had been stolen from him, if that was something he actually cared about, you'd think we would have seen him retrieving it because we've seen him have some badass moments and stuff, or we do end up seeing him have badass moments. So Yeah, he went and got the wolf lichen from a bunch of fucking Yakuza. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like if someone had stolen it, it would be a whole taken situation. Yeah. Call them up, threaten them. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say little thought was put into any of that and that it was just an interesting line when it was written that Deaton says I made the box (laughs) I mean I'm sure it was but as the fandom responsibilities try to fill in those gaps those gaps yeah yeah speaking of which who cut down the nematon no idea deforestation's real y'all probably hunters I wouldn't be surprised I mean if it's a beacon for supernatural activity hunters want to stamp all that out so wouldn't they want to draw them all there yeah it'd be like super convenient Hey, hey, I, I don't know. Well, it was I mean, two maybe, hunters maybe, that maybe, really well, like hey, to travel. Okay. Well, then maybe that was it. Maybe maybe Talia cut it down because it was drawing uh, supers there and it was hurting more people than helping. And she had it cut down to, to kill the beacon. Better to lose something magical than to lose many lives, you know, so. But it still works as a beacon. Well, because it got reignited. Like it was dead for years and years. And then our kids reignited it when they sacrificed themselves. Oh, okay. Whoever cut it down, they did whatever they intended to do. It worked. And then our kids sacrificed themselves and brought it back. Right. Okay. Or well, I mean, didn't Paige's blood reignite it? Someone reignited it after it was extinguished. It's frustrating because I feel like along with so much else that that episode retcons, I feel like that's also 
been retconned because I feel like it was the whole like, yeah, y'all done f-ed up and you doing this is what brought the Nimiton to life. But then, yeah. yeah, we have the page thing and it's just confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It's confusing. At the hospital, Void Styles approaches the front desk flanked by Oni and asks the attendant to page Melissa McCall. But before the attendant can do anything, one of the Oni runs him through the sword. Void Styles resigns himself to finding Melissa on his own, rolling his eyes at his stab-happy henchman. Void Styles saunters through the hospital while the Oni maim and slaughter everyone they encounter. Oh, I love the slow-mo shot of the person running down the hall screaming like that very first person you see. So good. And the song. It's Morning Ritual's cover of Bad Moon Rising featuring Peter Dramanis. I think that's how his name is said. So good. Oh, yeah. I love this cover. Uh, Russell, you're killing it with this sequence. One of the best sequences in the whole show. It is. I like the Oni doing a spin before slashing someone. Yeah. It's got flair. Must be Oni number three. Yes. Unaware of the chaos, Raphael and Melissa walk through a hospital hallway as Raphael asks Melissa to tell Scott that he had to go back to San Francisco without having time to say goodbye. He plans to send a follow-up email later. Re, I left. (laughs) Per my previous communication. Yeah. Melissa calls him an idiot for wanting to bail after one fight, but their discussion is interrupted when they take the elevator to a different floor and encounter the Oni. Raphael manages to close the elevator doors, but not before the Oni slashed Melissa's thigh. Okay, why do Raphael's bullets slow them down, but the same thing doesn't occur at the sheriff's station? He's got FBI bullets. (laughs) (laughs) At Chris's apartment, Isaac handles one of Allison's ring daggers. Chris tells him to be careful. Allison had to bandage her fingers when she was learning because they got so raw, but she wouldn't give up on it. Don't worry, I know all about these. I'm carrying one right now. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm surprised you went with that and nothing about Raw. So I guess. Yeah. yeah. Thank God for small miracles. There you go. (laughs) Isaac tells Chris that Allison was trying to tell Scott something before she died. A message for Chris. But it was probably just that she loved him. Or that she wanted him to destroy her laptop without looking at it. You know, one of those two things. Oh, my God. Chris tells Isaac that it's fine because Allison made a point to tell him that she loved him earlier when she was making a silver arrowhead. Isaac asks to see the arrowhead she made because he has a feeling it isn't there. Good for you, Isaac, figuring this out. Somebody tell Styles that Isaac finally said something useful. <laughs> I'm going to attack. He can't even get through it. God damn it. No, I can't. Uh, I'm just so hilarious. Um, <clears throat> I'm uh-huh. going to attach it to the box. I'm going to attach it to the bottom of this ring dagger and wear that. (laughs) Bruh. Hold on. I'm going to attach it to the bottom of this ring dagger and wear that too. Future will re-record that line. (laughs) Come on, Trey. You ever not think it's funny? It's easier easier to record it from this with the same ambient sound. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slap your own face. No, I'm good. I'm going to attach it to the bottom of this ring dagger and wear that too. Nailed it. I still think we should make for our socials, a compilation of a bunch of times that Will has laughed trying to say his own funny thing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think that would On be a really funny... On top of the compilation funny... of me messing up all the time. I think that would be funnier. This would be funny. I think it would be, yeah. Okay, I'll work on that. Everyone messes up. Not everyone laughs at their own lines so hard. That's true. That's true. But they can't even say them. At the sheriff's station, Stolinski returns from his office with a shotgun, telling Parrish... He's going to need a bigger gun. Ooh, somebody's seen Jaws. It's me. I've seen Jaws many times. <laughs> Jaws is amazing. Stilinski and Parrish managed to fend off the Oni, but they're injured in the process. 
Okay, how come this only super fancy blocking Parrish's shots with his armor? Meanwhile, McCall just shoots a few rounds and they're slowed down enough to close the doors. Uh, owning number three left the hospital and went to the sheriff's station. Mm. Scott reports that Derek has the Triskelion box and will meet them, but Lydia's senses are tingling, telling her they're running out of time. Styles arrives and says he has the same feeling, all the while leaning on Kira for support. Aw, Kira. Chris and Isaac get down to the basement and find four arrows with silver arrowheads. Isaac guesses that Allison made five. While the others were setting, she took the first one with her and used it to kill an Oni. She figured it out based on Chris's story about his first deal with the Yakuza. He was still using his ceremonial silver bullets, and that's why his shot broke an Oni's mask and slowed it down. Isaac thinks silver is like a poison to Oni, so it only kills the Oni if it stays in the body, not if it goes right through like Chris's bullet. At the sheriff's station, the Oni have left, but based on the state of their wounds, Stalinsky doesn't believe the Oni let them live. Meanwhile, Scott, Lydia, Kira, and Stiles arrive at the school. Stiles tells Scott that even if killing the Nagitsune means killing Stiles, they have to do it. Scott says his plan is to save Stiles. Still no evidence to support that concern, but okay. They're called emotional stakes, Kate. Except for the fact that they're based on nothing. All it would take is one little line of dialogue to indicate why they think that, and it would work. But as it is, Stylus is dying as the Nogitsune grows stronger. So what would make them think killing the Nogitsune would just kill Stylus faster? It makes no sense. I completely agree with Kate. But when they go into the school, they find themselves in a snow-laden version of the Japanese garden where the Yakuza face the Nogitsune. This is probably, no, definitely the greatest set we ever had on this show. It is. It's it's perfect. No notes. Why exactly did they go to the school? To keep Styles safe? Why would school be the place to keep him safe? I don't know. It's a standing set. At the hospital, Melissa makes Raphael swear that he'll work things out with Scott, no matter what. Scott doesn't care about apologies. He wants Raphael to do better. Derek and the twins show up at the school parking lot with a Triskelion box in tow. Boyd Stiles mocks them for being a sad pack of former alphas. Derek says he can still fight like an alpha. I work out. The naked stain the Oni enter the snow garden. It tells Styles that he's dying, and so is everyone else he loves. The Nagitsune has captured nearly all the territories on the board. The hospital, the sheriff's station, and now the animal clinic. All y'all sets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it works. Other Oni wound Deaton at the clinic, just as the Nagitsune said. The Nogitsune tell Styles of the Japanese samurai ritual of seppuku, wherein the samurai would disembowel himself before his second, or kaishakunin, beheaded him with his own katana. Scott is Styles' second, and the Nogitsune's goal is to get Scott to kill Styles and for Styles to let him. I feel like Scott just pops up in the background. It's like, so is seppuku anything like a bukkake? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Oh god. Uh, gross. <laughs> that really brings it all together. It's just <laughs> gross. gross. <laughs> At the sheriff's station, Parrish starts to fade. Stolinski orders him to keep his eyes open. He's about to perish. Oh. At the hospital, Raphael reminds Melissa that she told him to leave. She says she told a drunk to get out of the house, not Scott's father, to get out of his life. He's like, well, you should have been more clear. I thought you meant out of the state. Her line was excellently said, though. Even dying, Mama McCall is bringing the wisdom. 
Outside the school, Derek spots the Jeep, which confirms that the pack is there somewhere, probably inside the school. While he struggles against an Oni, Derek yells to the twins to get the Triskelion box to the others, just as a couple of Oni materialize next to the box. Somebody should have somebody should have thrown that thing in a fanny pack or something. My God. Are you willing to laugh at your own fanny pack jokes, Will? Yes! This man, hey, hey. he cannot get through it. <laughs> hey, where, where do you think uh, Isaac keeps his ring daggers, Will? Around his dick. <laughs> so not in a fanny pack when he's no, carrying it from that's never been the joke. That has never been the joke. Yeah, but you I can combine them, though. No, dick daggers mm. are infinitely more hilarious. <laughs> dick daggers. How are you going to swing it around in circles if it's in a fanny pack? Back at the hospital, Raphael notices there's blood on Melissa's lips. He calls out for a doctor, asking what it means. Probably internal bleeding. Isn't that usually what it means? And that's not good, right? Right? Uh, buddy, there's blood on the walls. We're not in a good place right now. Yeah, man, no offense. It's just that they're not exactly in a place for anyone to help her. There are a thousand stabbing victims up in there. Uh, I believe, what was it that I'd come up with last time? I was just about to say, it's like SW sword wounds. Was that it? There's a whole bunch of SWs around here. I think that was mine from a previous episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. About, yeah, because there's something they use for gunshot wound, right? Yeah, Yeah. GSW. GSW. Yeah. Does he work for the FBI? How does he not know, like, any basic first aid which i know this is a magical thing but he's wanting like he's like oh what does well i guess that could be mean? like a thing where because like if you get cut on your leg you're not going to start coughing up blood like i mean like if you're coughing up blood that's because something is happening in your abdominal cavities recesses and she's well, been like or, cut on her thigh or your esophagus or, right any she, anywhere yes. in that tract uh, waist up there's a <laughs> if there's blood in your mouth it's waist up and she's got like a cut on her thigh so while the fight continues both inside and outside the school, Styles takes Kira's katana and prepares to stab himself with it. Scott begs him not to, and Lydia points out that it could just be another trick. Then Nagitsune says, there are no more tricks. Pinky promise. Someone's got to check behind his back, make sure the other hand isn't crossing those fingers, y'all. Yeah. Styles hesitates, prompting the Nagitsune to goad Scott that he should do for his friend what his friend cannot do for himself. But then, Styles sees something strange in the katana, a reflection of a poster. He looks around and sees a textbook and a school desk. He may have found a divine move after all. Outside, just as Derek and the twins start to lose their struggle against the Oni, Chris arrives with Allison's bow. He shoots and kills an Oni with one of the silver arrows. Isaac backflips into the fray. He may have mostly turned on Derek, but he did learn how to enter a situation in style. Derek taught him unnecessary flips very well. The way the Oni die from the arrows, I kind of want one of them to be like, Goodbye, Winnie! (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Inside, Styles tells the others to stop fighting because this isn't real. It's an illusion. It's an illusion, Scott. Tricks are what whores do for money. Or candy. (laughs) Scott struggles his way toward the Nogitsune as the Oni slice him and Kira with their swords. Why aren't Styles and Lydia getting sliced up? They give big non-threatening vibes right now. I guess. Finally, they find themselves back inside the school, where they really were all along. Outside, Aiden kills the last of the Oni, but not before the Oni plunges its sword through him. The Nogutsune mocks Styles' claim that he has a divine move. They can kill the Oni, it says, but not the Nogitsune. Lydia says what they can do is change it. Like a diaper? My sexuality? I don't think you can. Have you been talking to Derek? 
Scott bites the Nagitsune, changing its host body, and Kira runs it through with her katana. The Nagitsune spirit is expelled from the body in the form of a fly, which Isaac catches in the Triskelion box. Dylan's big energy in this scene reminds me of when, during the pandemic, he and an actress friend of his were recreating scenes from movies, and they did the f*** you flip-flop scene from Social Network. Oh, yeah. The face of the Void Style's body cracks like porcelain, and the body dissolves into dark smoke. All those who are poisoned by Oni stab wounds immediately find their condition improving. So, they're all just healed? I think the wounds still exist, but they aren't poisoned anymore. So, they're like, everyone's fine, hooray, oh wait, that person was impaled. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think if somebody got beheaded, the, the head would just like scoot back and reattach to the neck or something. Yeah. Love to see it, though. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Styles collapses, but soon wakes up. He fainted, but they're all alive, right? I actually really love that they do this because I've seen several movies now recently, some of them period pieces and some of them or older movies and some of them not, but women are always fainting. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not a thing. I have never fainted in my life. Okay. It is not a thing that women just can't handle shocks. Not real. And so I love the fact that they just kind of subvert that here, that it's like Styles is so shocked by what's going on that he just faints. It's great. Unfortunately, outside, Derek and Ethan hold a dying Aiden. Derek is such a compassionate dude, comforting these two after everything they did. He is a living saint. Aiden says Lydia never believed he was one of the good guys anyway. Derek says she'll believe him. Okay, but like how great would it be if he just like leaned close and whispered, if I told her, but I won't. Oh my God. But I could if I wanted to. This yeah. is rough. Feet <laughs> <laughs> singing isn't that bad, Will. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I might have cared more if Allison hadn't just died in the previous episode. Yeah, she was a main character who's been with us since episode one. We're still mourning her, and it's hard to process both equally when Allison had been so central to the show for so long. Absolutely. Later at school, Kira tells Lydia that she wishes there were something she could say to everyone who's close with Allison and Aiden. But in a way, she still feels like the new girl. Lydia notices Coach talking to Malia, who's going to be starting at Beacon High. Lydia tells Kira she won't be the new girl for long. Meanwhile, Coach asks Malia if she's ever run track because she has excellent muscle definition. I don't think you can say that to kids, Coach. Lydia and Malia share a look. Yay! And I love it. They turn the corner and Malia's like, who's that cute girl standing with Lydia? Because Malira is the best. It is. I thought the description in the script here was interesting. She nods, noticing Lydia watching her from down the corridor. Lydia gives a welcoming smile, but one that quickly fades to an expression of guilt. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like that was in there to me. It didn't really feel like that was the emotion I was ending that moment with. What about you guys? I can kind of see it. I feel like I feel like she does do a bit of a stranger. Like her smile fades after a second. And yeah. I feel like I'm capturing that. It's hard to get across, but yeah. I mean, or guilt is specific. Guilt is a specific emotion. Yeah. And not like someone smiling and then their face falling is sadness or right, some right. emotion. But it's hard to look at it without context and be like, guilt. That is a right. face of guilt. At the McCall house. Scott teaches Malia how... I want to say Malia there, Will. Ah. No. Teaches Malia how to flick out her claws on command. In her excitement at managing it, she nearly claws Styles' face. She says she's sorry. No, you're not, baby girl. 
Nah, she's not. <laughs> not at all. Ethan breaks it to Danny that he can't stay in Beacon Hills. To Ethan's surprise, Danny is okay with it. He didn't think he could date a werewolf anyway. That's why Jackson and I didn't date. Well, you know, that and many other reasons if you've ever met him. <laughs> Wolfies, this is a take on the line from The End of the Lost Boys, where a character that we didn't know knew about everything was going on says, all the damn vampires. It's a great line. Such a classic movie. Yep. In the original script, Ethan didn't say the line about not staying. The scene opened on Danny breaking up with him. Oh, interesting. Styles takes down his wall of crazy to clear his head. In the original script, it said, Styles pauses when he notices the photo in his hand and the beautiful woman in the picture, his mother. This one he sets aside on his desk. So I found this in the script and ring it. Did we see that in this episode? No. I didn't think, I so, think so, but... No. No. I couldn't remember because I did remember him taking down photos. I didn't know, like, perhaps I missed one. But that mm. is interesting. And I know, like, there was talk about Claudia being in Eichenhaus and stuff. So I wonder if, like, he put her on the board to connect back to that. It's very possible. It also could have been about his brain condition. Oh, that's, that's true. true. You know, yeah, if it was, like, trying that. to figure out, is the supernatural? Right. Is not supernatural? That would make more sense because the stuff about Claudia and Eichenhaus didn't make it into any script that was all like mm. or, or at least any final shooting scripts so it would have to be like his frontotemporal dementia dementia Keaton tries to console scott by teaching him about regression to the mean no matter how bad or good things get they always go back to the middle scott isn't sure that applies to beacon hills they are still scrubbing blood off the hospital walls sir Elsewhere, an anxious Derek confides in Styles about a nightmare he had in which a group of hunters came to his loft and attacked him. The same hunters who tortured him and Peter after they left Cora. This hunting family was led by a man named Severo. I think they're led by Araya, folks. Yeah, that seemed to be the case. She seemed to be the HBIC. And in the original script, it actually has Derek saying it was a family of them led by a woman named Araya. So why so did that change? I no don't know. That doesn't That's really make so any sense. weird. Yeah. The hunters asked him again about La Loba, the she-wolf. Derek said they might as well kill him because they'll never find Cora. Severo seemed confused and asked who the hell Cora is. Maybe you should be more goddamn specific. Right? I wonder if like maybe they just they wanted to have give a name to the guy he's talking to in that scene and they didn't want to have Araya die in that. Oh. I mean, I yeah, that could be that. like that that he could be saying this particular group who are now assaulting me are led mm -hmm. by this person yeah. and not the whole organization. The whole I could family. see that. Yeah, I, the I line that. certainly makes it sound like the whole family, but I could see that as it being does. the motivation now that you yeah, mention it. That makes sense. Before Derek can get clarification on that whole mess, a smoke bomb rolls into the loft, throwing it into chaos. A new threat has come in and shoots Derek. I was asked who it was. Derek says there are, are a lot of myths about how people can be turned. A bite is most common. Another is from drinking the rainwater out of a puddle in a werewolf's paw print. That is my favorite myth, and I don't know why. It's just the visual of it is, ah, I love it. And probably because it's so underused. I don't think I've ever seen that before, but yeah. Yeah. But there's another myth. People can be turned from the scratch of a werewolf if it's deep enough. Like, what if the scratch goes through your whole neck? That's pretty deep. Hey, now we have another opportunity to have that visual of the head sort of oh, right, yeah. <laughs> rolling back and reattaching to the neck. Boom. Well, no, no. The head is just rolling around with someone going, I, 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 with their fangs <laughs> trying to get you. So, yeah. 
it was Kate Argent. Do you think MTV gave this away as well? Hashtag welcome back, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Rough. If it was just a dream, Styles asked, why is Derek so worried? Derek says he doesn't remember waking up. So how can you tell whether you're dreaming? Fingers, Styles says. In dreams, you have extra fingers. Derek grabs Styles' wrist and holds up his hand. He has extra fingers. So Derek is dreaming here? Yeah. He's dreaming of Styles. And what he thinks might be his final moments. Yes. In the moment when he's severely wounded and being captured by the person he fears most in the world, his subconscious places Styles there to answer his questions and comfort him. That's all. Got it. As grows do. It's then that Derek wakes up, still in his loft, facing Kate on his knees with a hole in his chest. It's real. Kate transforms and roars, and the episode ends there. So did the roar create the wind that was blowing her hair? Uh, Yeah, exactly. What an episode, y'all. Yes! Oh my god, I remember we did a retreat at this beach house in Malibu, all the Team Wolf writers, and then one night after dinner, we were all just chilling, and Jeff was drawing on his iPad. This was at the very beginning of season four, but we were still shooting 3B. And he goes, hey guys, what do y'all think of this? And he turned his iPad around, and it was that image of Kate, the final shot of Kate in her transformed state. And we were like, what the f***, dude? How do you just quickly draw shit like that? And it looks f***ing amazing. That was the shot. It was pretty f- cool wow yeah he's very talented mine would have been like a stick figure with like ears on it. <laughs> little, like, little like pointy teeth. ears pointy <laughs> ears yeah. it would have been adorable i'm sure like, you guys can't see it now but in my head is real real cool yeah yeah well you just get you, you just give that picture to john gross and you're like but better yeah you can <laughs> you, do that you get it you get, <laughs> you it. get it right yeah <laughs> All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for The Divine Move, and now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle, here comes the alpha. All right, Wolfies, now we're going to jump over to our interview with Aaron Hendry, who played Brunsky and then Agitsune on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Is that Aaron Hendry I hear? Yo, yo! Hey! Hi! How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I was up in my booth so we'd have good sound, but it's, of course, 600 million degrees. And uh, my little booth fan could not keep up. I was like, I'm not going to make it for a solid hour. No worries. No worries, man. No worries at all. Well, Aaron, it is so good to see you again. It has been a number of years, unfortunately. So, yeah. And uh, these are my wonderful co-hosts, Kate and Calissa. Yo, yo. Hi. Nice to meet you. And you. All right. Well, since it's so hot, let's uh, let's dive right in. Um, Aaron. How did you get into acting? I think like a lot of actors, you just, suddenly you were doing it when you were a kid. It's something you kind of start doing before you have a cognizance that there's a job doing this. You just discover yourself, like all kids, making stories and imagining things. But then, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in a town where there's a community theater, a local this or that, suddenly you're hanging out there and doing shows there and taking classes there. You don't ever 
really remember the moment of I decided to do this. You know, there's a, have you all read Malcolm Gladwell? You know, he was very sort of popular. Uh, tipping point. Yeah, yeah. there's very popular sort of pop culture sociologist for a while, but he says some really interesting stuff and he talks with a lot of really successful people about the, the 10,000 hours theory about mm-hmm. getting great at something. And I, and I think, you know, I grew up in a very small, very rural town, but, but one thing they had was this little sort of uh, adapted warehouse theater program. Actors my age or older almost always come from a background of theater. It's so interesting now to live among young actors who said, I want to be a TV star because no one really thought of that when I was in my <laughs> my 20s. You did right. shows is what you did. And maybe say someday you ended up with a job doing that. One thing that's wonderful about theater is that it's an actual place and you discover as a kid that it, it feels like the safe place to you. You just want to be there in that room all the time. And if you, if you stick with it, I, you know, for by chance or by design, or I don't know what, by the time you're a teenager, you've spent a lot of hours walking around that sort of psychological, spiritual, and then professional space. And it just feels like I live here and you can't really even look back and figure out when you started living there. You just do, you know. Gotcha. Fantastic answer. I was just curious. Uh, IMDb says you were born in Indiana, and I was uh, wondering where you were born. I know I was born in Indianapolis. My family lived in Evansville at the time, which Uh, is sort of a rural suburb of that. That's where my mom is from. It's where my dad went to college. But we were gone from there when I was pretty young. So I, I have a few tiny little fleeting memories of the Midwest and and they're good ones. But, uh, you know, I think I lived there just long enough to get all the best childhood, everything out of the Midwest and then leave. Because <laughs> I remember lightning bugs and thunder showers <laughs> and big Fourth of July parades and, you know, riding your bikes on the streets of a suburb. But, uh, you know, by the time I was four, we were long gone from uh-huh. that yeah, no. I was just curious because Kate and I are both born and raised in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, so. no way. Yeah. So we're familiar with Evansville. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, good stuff comes from Indiana, you know. <laughs> Definitely. Doug Jones is also from Indiana. Yeah. Volleyball and basketball are both from Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> so what about voice acting? How did you get into that space? Uh, completely by mistake or by by good fortune i guess i should say which is i got into that by having worked really hard to have a really facile well-developed voice for total other purposes and then truly being standing somewhere once and someone said hey do you want to come in here and record this for me and just never stopped working after that the first sort of job type job i had was a a campaign that carried on for a long time for the Hard Rock Cafe chain. And I did a whole bunch of their locations. And it was truly just because there was a a casting rep and an ad guy who were trying to figure out a local ad campaign for one of their locations. And they heard me rehearsing something else in the studio next door and said, will you come in and read this script? And just suddenly said, what if we just make like this wide multi-location radio campaign out of this because it wasn't really working for them. And uh, and I was suddenly off to the races in that, you know, you, you suddenly like had something that was putting money in my pocket and was a really good reel and a really specific sound. And 
and all the tools you need to suddenly try to have a career there. So they heard you speak and they were like, that's the voice of hard rock. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, guess, <laughs> I guess, yes, you know. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was fun. That's awesome. Well, you used a very distinct voice for one character on Teen <laughs> Wolf. So how did you end up in Beacon Hills? I was doing a stage play at the time. And it was with the teenage daughter of one of the regular directors of Tim Andrew was was in the show. You know, sometimes you just bump into someone really quickly. You're like, oh, we're going to be friends. And (laughs) when we were just talking after rehearsal one time, we're just like cut out of the same cloth. And he and I had started to become pals. And I didn't know he was, I didn't know what his show was. I knew he was a director and producer, but I didn't really know much more about him. And incidentally, you know, just my manager submitted me on the job for the Nogitsune. And and when he saw that a tape had come in from me, he called me and said, I was going to ask you to read for this. I'll make sure they see it. And so I knew I sort of had the nice gold star from, from one of the inside group. But I also, to be totally honest, and my manager just thought it was absolutely nuts. And this is so typical. And maybe it's, maybe it's why I'm a working actor and not a rich and famous actor. Is the every once in a while you pick up something, you're just like, I got to have this. I got to have this. And it's always really just weird <laughs> roles for me. Like just something that just strikes me in a way that I'm like, I got to do this thing. And, and it was, you know, it was supposed to be a one-off. It was a one episode character, but I just want, I knew from the second I read those, that those first two pages, I was like, I, this is mine. You know, Teen Wolf is is a show that is, I don't think I'm speaking after and say show that is well known for really, really gorgeous young people, besides being wonderful people and good actors. And everybody in the room was 10 years younger than me. And and just knockout freaking beautiful. And I just went in and went for freaking broke. The thing I had, I had not known the show before, but I'd looked up the show and, and gotten that, you know, Jeff, who I'd not met, was serious about his folklore. And so I looked up everything I could about that creature and I just made myself that creature <laughs> and purposely started talking in a way as if I had this massive mouth of teeth and and i would speak on purpose as if i had these super sharp teeth and then you know i read about how uh in the japanese sensibility there there's spirits that are both the spirit and the avatar of the spirit that is to say something can be a fox and also the eternal spirit of the fox and so everything that I could that was the raw material, I just really went in and went for broke. The casting director turned off the camera and he says, I don't know what the hell you just did, but I think it was good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah, and, and they dug it and we were off to the races, you know. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. I was just curious, the role of Brunsky, how did that come about when you were already the Nikitsune? <laughs> you know, I, I truly think Jeff felt bad that no one was ever going to see my face. That season was shooting way out. You know, if you live in LA, you know where uh, Balboa and Roscoe is. It's like in the deep valley. And and we were shooting out there and there was a loading dock a couple hundred yards away from the trailers were. And I saw him doing something that I then would learn was a very typical thing for him to do, which is he would sort of walk these little circles around the loading dock like thinking and thinking and thinking. And I walked up to him 
And I said, I'm Aaron and I'm playing another kid's name. I said, I know, I'm glad you're on the show. And, and, uh, and I said, do you mind if I email you some questions? And he said, no, not at all. And I went home and I emailed him. Is this the body he always has or does he switch bodies? Can he make himself a real body? Can he do all these different, all these questions I had about, so what's the reach of this character? It was another one of those moments where we hit a chord that we had in common. And so we were immediately just on each other's vibe about creating this thing. And I, I think it got us both very excited about it. So by the time Brunsky came around, you know, we were we didn't know each other incredibly well at that point, but we were friends. We were friendly with each other, you know, besides him being my boss, essentially. And and I think he kind of felt bad that I was stuck behind the mask. And then Brunsky, which was supposed to be a one-off, I just prepared for in terms of like just really preparing uh, you know, a a, a super duper textbook sadist you know and and really going into a place of of someone who gets enjoyment from exerting power over others and then gets a physical charge from exerting that power and and so I started really bringing it with that and we had this one scene where uh, I let the other guards beat up Styles in a shower I think and Tim who was was directing that episode said, give me one where I can just see that you, you get off on it. Like, give me a take where you, I can tell you, like, this gets you off. And after the take was over, he said, well, we can't use that. <laughs> it was so disturbing what I started doing that they were like, well, he's definitely doing what we asked him to do, but that's a real freaking sicko who we just shot all of a sudden. But something about, you know, it was just sort of, once again, you 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 get lucky when you your brain fires with another creative entity. And I started going somewhere that made Jeff go, we should make this a guy among the community, that he has old friends in the community, he has old enemies in the community. Oh, we should we should go the place of pulling some surprise if he's even worse than you would imagine him being, you know, that it's everyone's nightmare of my therapist who literally has legal and physical power over me is determined to torture me and destroy my life. As a performer, you start throwing stuff down that is that is where the creators want to go. And so they latch on and start running with it, you know? That's really cool. I'm kind of mad that I'll never see those tapes. Uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. All the stuff we did get that aired was Chef Kiss. So, oh, yeah. Listen, I do my job, you know, and I love my job. I'm I'm, I'm lucky. What Teen Wolf scene was the most fun or the most challenging to film? It's hard to say because so much of it was so much fun. There's a way in which the very first scene with Styles with me and Dylan O'Brien was just thrilling because when you go way out on a limb, you kind of don't really know what the hell you're going to do until you start doing it. And so there's something very fun of the end irreplaceable about the magic of those moments and the gift of really getting to work with one other actor and such a fun, committed, perfect for his role actor, you know, who just dove right into like really it becoming, going from a supernatural show to a, a horror show for a while, like really the real terror of what it, of what the kid's experiencing, kind of the thrill of the, 
the real time experience of, of getting those scenes is always super duper fun. One that we shot shortly after that, that was um, sort of the origin story for him was a ton of fun too. There's a particular scene where he gets up out of a pile, the Nogitsune rises up out of a pile yeah. of dead bodies that he's been and, and kills these two soldiers and takes their truck. And uh, and that was just a really, it was a bizarre night of shooting because we had all these extras and it was cold. And we were in a location down near the San Pedro Harbor and there'd been some struggles in the shooting earlier in the evening. So we were like well into like 3.30 in the morning by the time we were shooting that. And something about the Nogitsune mask is I can't really see anything. It's it's what I can see. It's like, I always say it's like looking through the dirtiest five-layer screen door you can possibly imagine. <laughs> if a light hits a certain thing, I can see the silhouette of it. Or if a light is directly behind me, I can su kind of suddenly see as far as my own hand. But I couldn't really see anything. So I'd try to block it without my, my makeup on. And one of the pieces of behavior that came about from that actually was the way of reaching out and grabbing everything, which I kind of started sort of making, imagining these, these claws gripping everything and sort of possessing everything as it went by. But really, I just couldn't see. And I had <laughs> to make a way of doing my blocking that involved grabbing on to anyone and anything that I passed by. And so there was some just some moment that happened where I got up out of these dead and walked through this field and I'm walking over bodies and I can't see the bodies I'm walking over and like slowly into frame of uh, my frame I can see this truck and I grab the truck and crawl up the side of the truck and grab this guy's head and rip it off that was which is incredibly fun for me because it sort of contrived to mimic the experience of it, that it was kind of this experience of like swimming through murky water until I found my goal. And, and, and so there was something very fun about that. And probably the hardest was the, the season finale of that season. Everyone was just so tired and there was a ton of people in that scene. And, and we, that was a night shoot that we were shooting, I think, until like 7.30 the next morning on that night. And uh, literally was at the point where in between takes, me and the rest of the cast would just lay down on our back on the middle of the stage and like say nothing in order to try to like get, and that, that was probably the hardest simply because we were still having fun, but we were at a place in the shooting process where, where everyone was just so damn tired at that point, you know? But we got it, you know, that's a good scene. <laughs> And that's what yeah, matters. Yeah, great. It's incredible. Yeah. Pain is temporary. Film is forever. Everyone mm -hmm. pretty much agrees three B is the best season. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it is kind of uh, just an understood fact. <laughs> yes. Uh, thanks. Thanks, guys. So the trailer for the Teen Wolf movie dropped uh, a little while back. Oh, it did. And uh, we heard a very familiar voice in it. Uh, <laughs> what was it like returning to the Nagitsune after so many years away? Well, I cannot confirm or deny the presence of myself in said film. Uh, all I can say about that truly is is that uh, it, it's such a lucky stroke to to have a team that truly you just love to work with, and the cohesion of 
of the way you like to work happens very quickly and very easily without a lot of tears. Mm-hmm. And it's also such a gift for any actor to be given the opportunity for a role of that is just invention. We're just going to make something out of nothing. You know, we're just going to find an idea and create a this weird supernatural mess. And, and I got to do both of those things. And so, you know, anytime I get asked back by Jeff Davis to do something, I say yes, because that's always the experience with him. I, I couldn't agree more. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. You shared about having a lot of fun on that first scene with Styles. Mm. Do you have any other fun memories from the set of Teen Wolf that you'd like to share? I think Tyler Posey is sick of me telling this story, but I'll, I'll tell it one more time because he's such a humble and such a kind person. I got in the script and, and zoomed through episodes to see the characters I had interacted with. And I had never watched the whole series at that point. Like you shouldn't admit that, but I had it by the time <laughs> I set shooting. And he came on the set and I didn't know who he was. And he sat down next to me and Dylan O'Brien in the chairs and, uh, He's like, hey, what's up? How it's going? How's it going? I was like, oh, hey, you know, I'm Aaron. I'm the, you know, the guest star on the episode. And I think it's pretty good. You know, it's a, it's a cool little show, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like a teenage soap opera, except we're all werewolves. And, and you know, and it's also a cool coming of age story about this teenager who has this super psycho power he doesn't know what to do with. I think it's, you know, really, there's some, some good pop culture and some good meat and bones there. I'm excited to work on just kind of gave my whole like doctorate spiel on what I thought of the show at that time. He was like, Oh, that's great. And he walked off and Dylan O'Brien said, you know, that's the team. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. And I was like, Oh, and I was super duper embarrassed and, uh, and was like, Oh my God, he's going to hate my guts from now on. But like the guy just is, maybe the nicest guy on planet earth and and, uh, and and yeah anyway but that was a that was a a fun time a, a fun not shooting time and and there were a lot of fun not shooting times just you know we worked like gangbusters on that show because for the schedule we always got a lot but truly i mean i feel like it's what everyone says when they get asked about a show they were on but it, it's no joke that that team of people was just I think it's the only way we got through it was in general, that team of people made themselves so pleasurable to be around. Teen Wolf has some of the most passionate fans out there. Have you had any fun fan encounters you'd like to share with us? I had my first kid five years ago and I continued doing stage work all the way up through that. I, I did one stage show after my kids came along, but it's stage work is such an intense time commitment that I, I haven't been able to do as much of that as as I wanted. But I was always amazed how at first I couldn't figure it out. But it, no matter what the play was, I mean, you know, Eugene O'Neill or Shakespeare, Steinbeck, like anything that you wouldn't think it, I, I'd look out and there'd be some gang of of like 15 and 16 year olds from San Fernando Valley who came to see me. It took me a while to go, oh, it's because you're following my Twitter, you're following my fan page, and, and I post it on the page. And and so that was really actually super fun to have the, the opposite of the experience I described, where I got to sort of show the work that I do that had nothing to do with the show to a lot of fans. I took a trip to Belize, and, and in Belize City, the young woman 
pulling my bag onto the carousel said, you're from Teen Wolf, aren't you? And, you know, the the funny thing is, even still to this day, no one who would see me on the street would know I was the Nogitsune. I could go to Comic-Con and and ask questions of the panel from Teen Wolf, and no one would have any idea that it was me. And that's that's always a bizarre thing. But the funniest thing about that was that we were living in Los Feliz at the time. I went out in that neighborhood. There's a lot of kid walkers. And I saw two kids dressed up as me. And I was like, wow, that is a moment when you walk out for Halloween and you see people dressed up as your character. It's like, that's, so cool. I, wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> you know? And I, I, I would have been like Bruce Wayne if I'd walked around and been like, I'm the no kid today. And this 12 year old kid would have been like, yeah, sure you are. It's just, a, it's a weird experience, like becoming known for someone that no one will ever know who you are. <laughs> yeah, we had actually posted on our uh, socials that we were going to be interviewing you and taking some fan questions. And on both our accounts, we were having people with their mind blown that you'd play both characters. Like, what? This is the first I'm hearing about that. I think there were two episodes that both the characters were in, actually. if I, We would block shoot, so we'd shoot some stuff out of order sometimes. But I think there's two episodes where the Nogitsune and Brunsky are both in the same episode. There might be. I'd have to really watch it again. They're definitely both in Echo House. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're, you're like the, the human villain and the inhuman villain in the same <laughs> right. episode. Yeah. Right. Totally. Speaking of Echo House, where both characters are in it, what was it like sort of vacillating back and forth between two different types of evil? As you know, better than anybody, like they hold their cards way to their chest, even with the cast, in terms of telling what the future of these things are. And I think everyone, including me, was questioning at that point, are we going to be made aware this is the same guy? Are, are we going to be made aware that, that this is the, the human being that the Nogitsune has taken over and, and that he is alternating between the spiritual world and this man that he's walking around at? And I, w- I totally thought that's where they were going, because otherwise, why the heck were they going to cast me to play two parts in the same blah, 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 blah. But, you know, fortunately, I don't think we ever shot the two characters on the same day. That would have been a little berserk. <laughs> So your credit is working as a looper on Love and Monsters starring Dylan O'Brien. Can you explain to uh, our listeners what that means? Looping is this subset of the voiceover world. It's every voice you're going to hear who doesn't have a face attached to it in the entire movie. And a lot of that is just, for example, the other people eating at a restaurant. If you think back to when I was a kid, at least, to the the 60s or 70s, you'd watch a scene with a crowd in it, and either you couldn't hear that crowd, you could hear the actors that were mic'd, and the crowd would be moving around the background making no noise, or you would hear a track that didn't really match. You'd hear, like, loud kitchen noise. It felt like a spaghetti western, like a sound that was coming from somewhere else. And somewhere around, I don't know when exactly, but somewhere in the 80s, They started saying, you know, we're getting closer and closer to making genuine as if you are in the room experiences with our sensibility of film. And so there started to be these specialty people who watch the scene and pick out 
they're eating this. They're talking to the waiter. These two are having a conversation. Do they look like a husband and wife? Oh, look, then a kid runs in from here and basically does the task of voicing all the people over there in the background so that without knowing it, it now really sounds like you're standing in that room. What they then really learned, which is why I said when you find people that are masterful at it, is you can change the entire mood of a movie by making the background sound a different sound, by making a police station sound like a friendly police station where everyone knows the name on every street or a very active police station where there's a lot of crime going on that you can, and and loop groups, those people are loopers and loop groups get hired to do exactly that, to change the tone of entire movies and entire shows. You would never know it was there until you take it away. But you go, oh, this makes me feel like I'm in this certain environment in this certain tone. Another part of what loopers do, which is a lot of what I do, is they fill in everything that, again, no one would think that's an actor doing that. Like if the character's sheriff and leans into his car and picks up the radio, someone on the other end says, Baker 416, we're southbound on Elm in pursuit of a subject, provide assist, please advise, come back. Something like that. That's a looper who did that. Because it suddenly to your eye looks wrong that he reaches in, picks up the radio and no one talks. And so the looper comes in and makes the voice of a cop. There's really an awesome gift because I don't do a ton of it, but you know, you're always looking as an actor, what is every angle I can work to keep food on the table? Because literally every time you walk off a set, you're without a job again. That's the long and the short of what a looper is in, in a nutshell. It's a hard thing to describe. Oh, that's really cool. I had no idea. It's really interesting. Are there any characters on Teen Wolf that you wish you would have gotten a chance to interact with on screen? I think I would have loved to have somehow ended up in the world of Argent, simply because I love that actor so much. And what he's doing is is such an archetypical and interesting thing on the show. For a show that is... a young person show. And so it's about the future and it's about freshness and brightness. It's a, a very wise thing that they put on the show to have someone who is the voice of history and the voice of the past. And he's just such a neat character and such a neat guy. Yeah, JR is great. That would have been fun. That would have been interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Who on the Teen Wolf set, cast or crew, would make the best alpha? Truly and sincerely, Posey. He is so right for that. And I don't know if it's because he grew up with it, but when he's on the set, he really, really epitomizes being the leader of something by showing up, supporting everyone, noticing everyone, doing excellent work, being there to find out what the problem is, if there is a problem, and being someone who who fills in the gap and and is always in the attitude of, Oh, we'll get this. The sky's not falling. Don't worry. The leadership quality of being someone who, when they walk on, you're just confident everything's going to work, is such a sort of unobtrusive and humble but powerful leadership quality. And he really has that. And truly, I mean, I know it it, it sounds like I'm just trying to feed into the the work, the um the storylines, but but Hecklin would be the other one because Hecklin works in a way 
that is interested in the details. He wants to know what's going on and he wants people to take ownership of doing great work. And he wants, he is the first guy, if there's a problem, to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Aaron's got a problem. Let's figure out what Aaron's problem is. And 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 so he is a very, very assertive about saying, this is a team. We build this thing with this team. I don't know whether they grew into those qualities within the show or whether it's what made them right for the show, but they both really have personal qualities that follow who they are in the storylines and, and really make it a fun situation to work with them. That's a great answer. How would you compare working on Teen Wolf to something bigger, like a Marvel show, like Inhumans? The fun thing about working for Marvel, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, they're freaking Marvel. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what can't you do? The thing that is true about any size of show, though, you can feel while you're shooting something whether the minds are lined up and the vision is lined up and it's working and you can feel when it's not. Mm -hmm. And there's something about a team that somehow hits its stride of knowing how to get on the same page and see the same thing you're headed for, or at least, um, you know, uh, Russell is the director of the Teen Wolf film and having worked with him, no one ever knows where the hell Russell is going. Like he is a complete madman. That is accurate. He has a he really, I mean, you know, but he has a body of work that allows you to say, you know where this ship is going. So I will just get on the ship and sail it with you. I don't need to know where the ship is going because you've proven you can see it. You see it out there somewhere. And when you work on a set like that, things fall together quick. And I think an obstacle with giant entities like Marvel is there's, a, you know, that show shot in Hawaii and, and there's a huge amount of time and decision making and departments and approval to get checked in with every time you're going to take a single shot of anybody doing anything. I mean, the the number of people who had to like sign off on those like crazy, you know, super crocodile arms that I was wearing was so insane. It takes a lot of doing to keep something on focus when when you're doing something with an entity of that size. That's that's the trade of all of the the magic that is possible with an entity of that size. They're truly like, you know, where do you want to go? We'll go there, you know. Right. But um, it's tricky. It's interesting. That's very interesting to hear. Yeah. If you could be any Teen Wolf creature, what would you want to be? The answer is like a personality test, isn't it? In a certain way. It's it's like the answer of, of flying or invisibility, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's so interesting. You know what I'd want to be? Is I'd want to be one of the hunters. I wouldn't want to be one of the supernatural characters. Because... I think what maybe what I loved about that character and I love about those characters is the looking and the listening is such a part of that identity. Mm -hmm. And and there's so much to that that I find admirable and envy. I mean, we, you know, we all are thinking a lot of thoughts and have a lot of ambitions and God do a lot of things. And when you, you really think about the people who are like quite extraordinary presences, they're people who like really know how to look and listen and just stay even as life goes on, you know? 
And I love that about about that personality, you know, and I, I think why that show works so well is because it has this pop culture thing of, I mean, I'm going to say something horrible if Jeff ever hears it, it'll it's, it's like Dawson's Creek plus werewolves, you know? And, and, and it's, it's <laughs> don't listen to your parents, have all the sex you want. You're always right. They're wrong. And we're werewolves, you know? <laughs> and so there's a, a wonderful, just like, heck yes, that's a show we'll watch. But then what it gets followed up, up with and again, it has to do with, I think, has to do with his love of the, the subcultures and of the mythos. They are characters who are learning the lessons of self-knowledge, of power, of weakness, of, of all these different things through these mythical creatures that, that you know, were invented in human spirituality to teach us those lessons. I went back and watched those first few seasons. And and the story of a young man who discovers this incredibly strong, brave entity that's this psycho-savage Superman inside of him, and he can't control it, but it, it's able to do all these things. And, and then the story of going, oh, that's, that's not it, that's me. I, I am it, is such a, a giant, like, mythical story of the world. And so there's something that really works about having this this youthful pop culture show that is then told in the context of these allegorical lessons that all the characters learn through the supernatural powers. And so I think, I, I do, I think there's a personality test in the answer about who you identify with and what is that thing that is the struggle of your, your own life that you're looking to get a handle on. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a good answer. I, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Really interesting look interesting take on it yes so uh you recently co-wrote a nicholas cage film called prisoners of the ghost land and yes. this isn't a question it's a statement or not even a statement but i just wanted to thank you for your service um <laughs> to all of us and can you tell us what that experience was like yeah that was so fun i i have always written a lot but it's always just been something i did for the fun of writing and the only times i'd ever shown any screenplays that I wrote to other aspiring writers or career writers, they'd always said, no one will ever make this movie out of your mind. <laughs> and because of the things I, I liked to write. And I, because of that, I didn't pursue it a lot. And I wish I hadn't listened to that. Uh, because now that writing is a part of my career, it's such a fun part of invention. That was written with a friend of mine from college, just a really excellent friend named Reza Safai, who, have you seen the, the film A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? Yeah. It's a wonderful, small Iranian vampire film. And he was one of the main creative producers that, that got that film made. Oh, and okay. um, and that kind cool. of put him on the map of, of the, the weirdo spiritual indie film world. And and he's just been you know, a friend of mine for you know 25 plus years. And, mm -hmm. and he and I did a lot of stage work together, did a lot of writing work together. And another producer friend of his was saying, you know, Sion Sono is looking for his first English language film. And Sion Sono is sort of like, again, if he could hear me say this, he'd strangle me, but it's apt. He's, he's sort of like Kurosawa plus Tarantino. And in that he has this amazing skill of the poetry of ultraviolence, but is also coming from this 
really, really finely honed skill of, of Japanese storytelling that sort of doesn't really exist here, that we have a version of, but not really the way they do. And, you know, because English wasn't his first language, he was for the first time looking at at scripts that were pr- previously written. He had always written all his films. And I mean, the guy's made like 50 something films. I mean, he's made a lot of dang movies. Wow. So this other producer had said to Reza, he's looking and Reza called me and said, you know, I think we've bad around an idea that he would like. And so we developed that idea and and brought it to him and, and he dug it. And, you know, then Reza was with another film at Sundance when Mandy was winning all the awards at Sundance. And he, he ended up talking to Cage, who was a giant Sion Sono fan, because, you know, Cage is a big cinephile. And with films that size, it's kind of how you get off to the races is, is if you know you're not a film that's going to go to a big house, you look to say, well, who's the right director? Who's the right actor? And then inevitably, there's an actor or a director or a producer who wants to work with that person because they're the kind of films get, that get made by people who are just dying to make that kind of material and then mm. people started jumping on board but while working with Sion we, we in the pre-production we wrote rewrote 11 versions of that that were all essentially the same story but they had far and wide things that got dropped and added and dropped again because I mean he's a crazy person and and we, we went from a wildly bizarre script to a a shockingly bizarre script, but but he ended up being the right guy. Like the core of what of what the story was, he really got it. And we, it wasn't supposed to shoot in Japan; it was supposed to shoot in Mexico. And he had a heart attack three weeks before we were supposed oh, to start wow. shooting. Yeah, and so for his physical health, and in addition to us just being able to get our insurance, you know, Cage, I think, was actually the first one who said, you know, we don't want to risk putting the director on a plane a couple of weeks after he's had a heart attack. Let's, mm-hmm. let's delay. I'll, I, I'll, I'll stay with it. I'll extend my, you know, the, the, the terms of his contract and, and let's, let's kick back a couple months and, and go in Japan. So it was great. It was great. It ended up being a really bizarre, but great time. That's awesome. That, that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds awesome. This is a fan question. Was the Nogitsune costume uncomfortable or did the costume designers make sure it was comfy to move around in? There were some things that had to get sort of developed on costume-wise. When we got to the episode where it was the entire bandage suit, it was kind of like, oh, what the heck are we going to do now? Because we, you know, made the bandages that came down to your clavicle and then there were clothes over it. But with the regular outfit, I mean, the biggest obstacle was, I mean, basically when you have a big winter hat on over your entire head, you just start to get hot really fast. And so there had to be adjustments of just simple things like taking the sleeves off off the arms of, of the shirts, taking the lining out of the jacket. They even sewed a, a pocket into the back of the jacket that they'd slip ice packs in and out of. Because once you're in that kind of makeup, it costs a lot of time on set if you keep pulling yourself in and out of it. So there were some uncomfortable things that they fixed. But I mean, obviously, they really got on. The, the thing that was hard, you know, and I'm sure you heard this from other people who had way harder creature makeup than me, was the amount of time you have to remain in in order to be able to shoot just becomes really kind of punishing. And for me, 
unfortunately, because I didn't have all the rubber prosthetics that really became unbreathable and the sweat is unbearable and all that stuff, the the hardest thing was really just the disorientation, was that we had to have someone who would just come take my arm and walk me around the set and like get me stuff to eat. And like, literally I'd open my mouth and they'd shove a bite of food in my mouth or a straw. And the the hardest comfort part of it was, it was kind of like that, you know, the experience of, of taking a plane ride overseas where you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm off a plane. You're on there for just long enough. They bring kind of adapts to I'm somewhere else. And after a full day of shooting, I would pull the gloves off and the teeth out and the head off. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like to see things and talk. And and you sort of like go a, a little batshit after a while because it just becomes so disorienting, you know. I would yeah, really, imagine. really enjoy seeing footage of the Nogitsune being like spoon fed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds delightful. Someone must have that somewhere. I'm sure someone <laughs> has a picture of that happening. So how long were you in the makeup chair for that costume? The first few times it would take about an hour, but they were really determined. You know, one one reason practically speaking is they have to make up change so many people in our shooting days were like totally scheduled around who has to go to make up and turn into another creature because that takes so much time. They were really determined to make it so that could be done quickly and comfortably enough that I could get through all the way to lunch without taking any of it off and then put it back on and get all the way to the end of a shooting day without taking it off. And so they got that down to first time of the day putting it on because you have to do some under makeup so you can't see any human features and fit the teeth would take about an hour. But then if they had to break it down and put it back together, they could break me apart and put me back together in about a half an hour. So I wasn't wow. nearly yeah. as taxed as a lot of the other people. And, you know, once they got like when they revisited him at the end of of the series they've gotten more ambitious with the look and the more ambitious that they get they get with the look the longer it takes because suddenly like we want claws to go through and we want the bandages to be more form-fitting so you can see the you know the skull eyes and blah 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 and then you're like oh now we're getting tricky and this is going to take a while but they did a really great job and i think if there's anybody on that set that is the closest to the cast it's probably the fx team because you were so reliant on your work with them and spent so much time at their side, you know? Yeah. You've played some really incredible characters throughout the course of your career. What has been your favorite role to play? You know, the Nokitsune is up there because of the invention, to be totally honest. There's just a fun to it. But there was a movie called F-Stops that I did when I was really young. And it was about a, a young director who finds a couple actors and wants to make a bank robbery movie and they end up actually robbing banks because they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah, that sounds really fun. It's a great setup for a film. And and what was was fun about that was that it, it was definitely a life follows art in terms of, you know, the director was a year out of film school and we were all in our mid 20s. And we didn't know what the hell that we were doing. And and we went on these locations out to the desert and would not have brought enough food or there was nowhere for people to cool off or we hadn't approved where we were going to be shooting or 
nowhere to like the 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 grip team was the only professional team on it. And like over and over, they had to like remind the the people producing it. Producing is a very liberal term in this case that they need a <laughs> tremendous amount of power to plug all these lights in. And so it was really just a total comedy of errors doing it. But I have to say, I look back on that and the work I did of because it was a genuine, I mean, you always do work that you relate to. It was a genuine story of a young actor who so wants to be in this world and succeed and so doesn't understand how to make that happen, that they find themselves confronted with doing something desperate and they decide to do it and then learn the lesson of there's certain things you can't ever take back about life. And when I watch that performance, I'm so proud of that performance. Like it's, it's a really damn good performance, you know? And then there's another film, uh, a feature length. Oh, this was something that my friend Reza Safai did before, before he, uh, he made it big. There's a feature length film that he made of, uh, of the Beastie Boys video sabotage. And I played coaches in it. I played the detective with, uh, with the The handlebar. Yeah. And it's a detective story where all the other cops are, modern day looking cops and 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 I'm this one cop who walks around with a fake mustache and the hair and the light that I throw on the top of the car and and has all these weird like you know I'm gonna dunk you like a donut punk you know like <laughs> ridiculous freaking lines but I love that one too and, and that's you know it goes back to the first thing I said which is there's something I love about the roles that are so far out on a limb that that the challenge is, but can I make this a real entity? Can I make this a real human being? And and so the story, it's like the made up story from the video of him losing the love of his life and turning into this hardcore justice oriented guy. It's sort of a like bizarrely music video comic version of the Punisher almost, <laughs> you know? And And I loved that because it was, it was such a challenge to say, but somewhere in there, there's a real human being doing this. Like people do crazy stuff. Someone would really do this. So how do you actually find the guy that would live this life, you know? And I love playing parts like that where you go, this is so far out on a limb. How could we possibly make this work? Let's see if we can make it work. That's really cool. That's, yeah. that's really cool. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, find these projects and give yeah. them and give them a look. So. <laughs> um, well, uh, Aaron, are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? I've done a, really done a lot of shifting to trying to be in the the creative side of it because I just started having so much fun with that. There's TV appearances coming up, but I have to be honest, I I should have figured. I don't know which ones I'm allowed to say and not. My God, you have to sign so much stuff every time you step onto the set now. But yeah, Reza and I have one set up with a really wonderful director that's kind of in the pipeline and moving a, a, a new film with with me and the the the, the fellow who produced and co-wrote Ghostland that I'm really excited about. And uh, and boy, if you thought no one would touch the Ghostland script, <laughs> this was one that's like, I dare you to make this crazy movie that I just wrote. <laughs> but I love it for actually exactly why I just said I love this actor. I, we, while writing this, we fell so in love with the people. And, you know, Reza is first generation from Iran. And so he and I both, we find a, 
found a real sweet spot of telling a very, very American story that has a strong point of view of, of someone from the Midwest just steeped in being red, white, and blue American, and someone from a foreign country who's discovering what it is to be an American. And uh, and I just love it. And I love the people. And so fingers crossed that that within uh, you know 18 months, someone you guys are going to be watching that film. It's looking good. It's, it's looking like we're getting places. Well, fantastic. fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that. Definitely, Thanks. we will be keeping an eye out for that. And uh, Aaron, this has been an absolute pleasure getting to yes. talk to you and revisit uh, two of our favorite villains from all of Teen Wolf. Yes. Yeah, well, me too. And uh, I, I'm so psyched that you guys are are introducing people back to the series again before they come out with that film. Because, uh, you know, like I said, Russell, who's directing that film, never disappoints. He he always shoots stuff that you're like, I don't know what the hell you are doing. <laughs> and he finishes it and you're like, oh, that's what you're doing. That's awesome. <laughs> so I think it's going to be a pleaser without a doubt. You know? Before we log off, can we make a request? Uh, we'll see if I can fulfill it. Can you say dude at Speakin' Hills in the Nogitsune voice? Okay, so here's the tricks of being the Nogitsune. First, you have to imagine that you have legs that bend backwards like a fox would or like a dog would. So that's oh. that's actually where the walk comes from, is walking as if your knees bend the opposite way. And one of the effects of that is it makes the rest of your body pitch way forward and your chest comes out. And so your your voice naturally drops way down because you've got your whole you're breathing from your torso all of a sudden instead of from down and then you've got to find the teeth and that because he can't see his teeth are his sensory organ he feels with his teeth when he breathes through them dude it's beacon hills oh my god, oh my god. that's that awesome good. Thank you. Oh yes. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank much. you. Thank <laughs> that you. That was amazing. We had a great time talking with Aaron, but now it's back to spoilers. We should have had a wistful look from Deaton in, in the scene where Lydia brought up Talia Hill, since you know he was in love with her and all that. Oh yes, he was in love with her. He made so many promises to her that he kept. That he uh, kept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was there ever a talk of killing off Isaac since he left the show after this episode? Not that I remember. It was funny when we rewatched this episode and I made that comment about, good for you, Isaac. You finally said something useful. And one of you guys was like, in his final episode <laughs> on the show is when that happens. I was like, yeah. oh my God, that's right. This is his final episode on the show. Final one. He's going to be whirling that ring dagger in France. Oh my God. Just walking down the Champs-Élysées, swinging those hips. <laughs> With the Nogitsune's endgame, the story almost got to the point of pushing Scott to confront the greatest ethical issue he as a character could confront. Is it ever ethical to kill someone? But they don't quite get there, do they? Nope, unfortunately. But don't worry, kids. In a couple of seasons, he will blame his best friend for doing that very thing. But then they'll get over it without ever really confronting the crux of the issue because, of course, what his friend actually quote-unquote did was just be present while an accident took place it doesn't even qualify yeah it was an accident that styles didn't even really play a part in i don't even want to like weigh in on that part because i'm just so angry you guys i'm just saving it for when we finally get there because i'm gonna have a lot to say we will look forward to to it 
But speaking of having a lot to say, I have so many thoughts about that last scene with Derek and Dream Styles. To start, I want you to pretend that you don't know how homoromantic this is. Just pretend, okay? Put yourself there. Okay, I'm there. Okay. Now, with what we have seen of Derek and Styles removing the subtext from their meaningful moments throughout the show up to this point, how much sense does it make to you that Styles is the person that Derek sees in this moment? I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Not really even devil's advocate, but... The white devil. Yes. At the beginning of this season, Styles has all the information about dreaming. So, of course, Derek would go to him for that information. I get that. But here's my rejoinder. Why would Styles tell Derek any of that? Because Styles isn't a dick. He can clearly see that Derek is in a bad place here. But we know this isn't the real Styles in this scene, right? This is Derek's brain Styles. Oh, right. I keep forgetting that. So... When Styles was going through all the shit earlier in the season, feeling like he's going crazy, not being able to tell when he's dreaming or awake, we see him telling Scott, sure, and that makes sense, but if we insist on keeping this relationship non-romantic and more importantly, non-emotionally intimate, why would Styles, in the state he was in, share any of this pain with Derek when he doesn't have to? Not even just the general state of not knowing if he's dreaming, but if Derek knows that Styles had to do that counting your fingers thing to be able to tell if he was dreaming, that means Styles had to tell him at some point in the real world these small details about what he was going through. Or Styles told Scott, and it was Scott who told Derek. Oh, yeah, sure. Because yeah. Canon definitely bears that out. Scott's been consistently great about sharing detailed information with Derek. Are you serious? There are whole plot points built around Scott not sharing information. Yeah. He could have told Derek his master plan in season two. He could have told Allison about why Derek bit Victoria and averted the events in season two. Scott didn't even tell Derek that Kira's a kitsune in this season. Derek figured that out on his own. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't really work. Like, the writers knew Styles had this information about dreaming, so they put him in Derek's dream to explain it. But they didn't worry about the logistics of the information. They didn't worry about the emotional context of it. Absolutely. What fans are for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my argument is in no way that the writers did that intentionally. What I am saying, though, is that if you stop and think about this in-universe, with what we know about these characters and how and when and why they share things with each other, do we really believe that Styles would go to Derek and give him the details of his torment without them having any kind of emotionally significant relationship with each other. Or to your point that Scott would just tell Derek, which would really be the only plausible alternative. No, they wouldn't. Yeah. So I don't believe the writers did this intentionally to suggest that Styles and Derek have a more emotionally significant relationship than we get purely on the text level of the show as opposed to subtext. But I do believe that this is a situation where the shipper's explanation actually makes more sense in-universe. If Derek knows the details of Styles' suffering at the beginning of this season, which he does in the scene, it's because Styles told him. And if Styles told him, it's because they have a more emotionally intimate relationship than we see openly discussed on screen. So if you believe there's this weird connection between them that they can't totally explain, that makes more sense than that Styles divulged this information to someone who's at most 
like a disgruntled coworker of sorts. Like, why would he pour his soul out to Derek in his time of need then? Not to mention that Derek's brain could have just conjured somebody else to deliver the information, but it doesn't because he needs to see someone comforting in this moment. Derek is in an incredibly vulnerable position here. You can even see it in the blocking, if you'll forgive me getting extra English majory here. Derek is sitting and Styles is standing over him. How many scenes are like that with Derek? Not many. Derek doesn't like to be at a disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're definitely right, Kate, with the whole idea that Styles, even if you don't want to say like you ship them in a romantic way, I do feel like Styles is the person who Derek could have like the most amount of comfort from because. Styles is the one who's shown the most compassion whenever yes. like the whole abomination scene when he's the one who told Chris about what Kate had done and puts the blame not on the Hales like Scott did with the whole like, well, they, you know, you guys must have done something. No, he's like, this is horrible. And mm-hmm. your sister is to blame. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I feel like while Scott has growth, shown growth, he still, I feel like hasn't shown a lot of stepping in to help Derek or do anything that shows like that Derek could feel safe with him Mm -hmm. and obviously Peter is just a monster so yeah Peter's all about those weaknesses and stuff I feel like Styles is someone who despite throwing up in his face that he did not one but two mass murders I feel like Styles offers the most compassion and Derek could feel least vulnerable opening up to him also just the fact that he's a human who despite what happened with the nuggets and a can't hurt him physically right yeah yeah there's there's that and there's just the whole concept of psychological safety right mm-hmm. i mean in the scene derek is showing some of i'll say the softer emotions here we don't see him let letting himself express these things normally he's afraid He's upset, and we're actually seeing and hearing it, right? His shoulders are rounded, his voice is unsteady. Normally, we just see him compartmentalizing or sublimating into these harder emotions like anger. And in this scene, his brain is like, Styles needs to be here for this. So to me, it feels significant on both sides. On Styles' part, because they had to have had an intimate conversation previously about Styles' knowledge. And then on Derek's part, because his brain chooses to use Styles to deliver this critical message of this is real. You need to snap out of it. You need to wake up and face the hell that has come to your door. So if you've been picking up on all this subtext and these conversations they have that imply a deeper relationship than we actually see on screen, it explains it better. Like Styles knowing about Kate. For instance, when we know from the end of season one that Derek never told anyone about her. This is the culmination of that trend on the show. I totally agree. I think this is all the subconscious writer. That's what this is. On some level, the writer's brains are telling them you put them in scenes together for a reason. Yes. Intimate scenes. Like Calissa said with Abomination, and actually Christian said when we discussed Abomination with him. Holding someone in your arms for two hours and nearly drowning to save their life. That's intimate. They clearly have chemistry. There's no denying that. Even the most anti-steric person can't say that they do not have some kind of chemistry in their scenes. If they say that, they're just eluding themselves. And they're wrong. Not just wrong, you're stupid, as the cat Matt says. Yes. (laughs) 
they're just saying that because they can't give an inch. The subconscious writer keeps telling the writers to do this, and it keeps happening for the whole series. And there's a reason for that. Anything you want to add, Calissa? Captain Hat really sums it up with, you're not just wrong, you're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) No, I think you just, I I don't know how really even to build off of what you said, because I just 100% agree. And I think that's a very insightful way of looking at all that. And it becomes, yeah, an unconscious writer thing is about fitting these two characters together because they make the most sense Mm -hmm. instead of using anyone else that's around. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.